Well, good morning. It's great to be here for my once-a-year stint. Didn't know that was the official thing, but that'll work, that'll work for me. When Scott asks me to preach, you know, like I say, not all that often, but I always feel like I have a choice. You know, I can talk about something that I, I'm pretty good at and I, I know something about, or I can talk about something that I'm really not all that great at and really need some work on. And I've chosen the latter this morning, so you should be a little concerned. <laughs> but, you know, the idea of prayer is something that yeah, I, I'm not great at, you know? I, I just want you to know that I'm not coming at this from a state of having this all together, having it nailed down, and then I'm going to share my, my wonderful insights with you. I, um, I, I struggle with this, as, as most people do. In fact, how many of you would say that you, just, you got prayer just nailed? I mean... This is, this is a strong point in your life. You just roll out of bed, you hit your knees, you spend an hour with God in prayer, and you, you have this thing down. Any, how many people, that describes your prayer life? You know, there probably are a few kind of humble souls out there who really, that does describe you, you're just a little afraid to raise your hand, and, and it's great, and I, I love that, and I know some of you, and I know that there are some real prayer people in this church that are just gifted in that. I'm not one of them. Um, but I just felt that if I spent some time over the last month um, really delving into prayer, praying, um, studying prayer, that it might change my prayer life, that it might help me draw closer to God through prayer. And it really has. This last month has really been one of the greatest times in my life uh, just in terms of prayer, and it's made a big difference for me. And so um, I hope that it will be that way with you. Uh, if we're going to talk about prayer, then we should pray. So Lord... Um, we invite you to be here. We just want uh, this message to be one that draws us close to you, draws us into relationship with you, uh, maybe in a deeper way than we never have before. Father, I pray that we'd be transformed as individuals and that we would be transformed as a church um, because we're closer to you. And Lord, we love you and we ask that in Christ's powerful name. Amen. So I started out, I just wanted to get kind of a feel for the state of church in our culture, or state of prayer in our culture, both within the church and without. And I found this interesting um, group called Lifeway Research. They did this kind of exhaustive study of prayer. And here's what they found. 48% of people in America say that they pray every day. And 68% of people in America say that they pray at least once a month. That was surprising to me. I thought, wow, that's pretty good. But then the study kind of delved down into uh, things that people prayed for in the last month. 21% prayed that they would win the lottery. 20% prayed for success in something that they put almost no effort into. 15% prayed that nobody would find out about a bad thing that they did. 13% um, prayed for their favorite sports team, and I know who you are. 10% prayed that they'd be able to find their keys. 7% prayed for a good parking spot. Oh, Lord, majestic in heaven. I really want that spot in the front row. 5% um, prayed that some, for somebody's relationship to end, and 5% prayed that somebody would get fired. Who, who knew? But before you um, get too judgmental, um, I want you to ask yourself this question. If God answered every one of your prayers this last week, who would be better off? You would, right? You'd get over that cold, you'd get the job that you're applying for, your son would move out of the house, uh, you know, the, that blind date that you're going on on Friday night would be the one, uh, you know, 
you'd be better off. Because we tend to be kind of selfish people, and when it comes to prayer, well, that's, kind of, that's kind of how we are. And listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for our needs. Jesus clearly says that we should. But prayer is so much more and so much bigger than just praying for stuff that we want. I've looked through the Gospels. You know, I've been spending a lot of time over the last couple of years just reading through um, the book of Luke and just kind of doing some devotions there. And um, here's a couple of things that I found. It was really kind of interesting just looking at Jesus and prayer. In Luke 5, Luke 5, verse 15, it says, News about him spread all the more, and the multitudes were gathered to him. But Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. The very next page in Luke 6, it says, One day Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer. A couple pages later in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, while Jesus was praying in private, the disciples came to him. And again in Luke 9, verse 28, eight days after he said this, he took Peter, James, and John up to a mountain to pray. And just a couple pages later, it says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. You get the idea that prayer with Jesus was a centerpiece of his life. It, it, like it was this, um, this is the most important thing to him. Even when he was really busy, he sometimes stayed up all night because being with his father was more important than sleep. How many of us have done that? It seems like prayer wasn't a chore for him, like Jesus genuinely enjoyed it. I was talking to Stephanie this morning, and she, she mentioned to me, her mom said, uh, she said her mom used to say, if Jesus lived in unbroken fellowship with God, then shouldn't we also? Well, that's pretty good. You know, prayer was such a part of Jesus' life that the disciples come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so we're going to be taking a look at Jesus' instructions and what he said in response to that answer. Uh, we're going to talk about the basis of prayer. We'll talk about the progression of prayer. We'll talk about the power of prayer. And we'll finish with the problem of prayer. So the lead-in to, um, to the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew uh, chapter 6. It says, And when you pray, and Chad read this, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray, our Father. And so I want to stop there. Um, this term, our Father, uh, this, would have been, this would have been radical to the, to the disciples when they heard this. And it's hard for us to understand how kind of revolutionary this is, because we pray the Lord's Prayer all the time. And if you've been raised in a Catholic or you know, some type of tradition like that, you may have prayed the Lord's Prayer thousands of times, every time starting with our Father. So it seems second nature to us. But in the Old Testament, nobody ever addressed God as our Father. This is completely radical to them. No, they had never heard anyone address God in such a personal and an intimate way. In the Old Testament, God was Yahweh. He was Elohim. He was these, these names that are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he was up there, and God says you know, to Moses, take off your sandals because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. God was this, this faraway, majestic Lord of all, 
the idea that he, we could address him as personally as our father was revolutionary. It was just radical to the disciples. They'd never heard anything like that. Helpful to come into that context when we look at this. And it does say, um, you know, Jesus goes on in, in this kind of preamble to the Lord's Prayer. He says this. He says that there is a pagan way to pray and that there is a Christian way to pray. Now, when he says pagan, he's not talking about how we think of pagans because we think of, you know, these people far from God, atheists, people who would never pray, but clearly these people pray. They pray a lot, and they think that they're going to be heard for their many, many words. So there's the pagan way to pray, and there's a Christian way to pray. The pagans love to stand up in synagogues and offer long prayers with many words. So Jesus is not contrasting irreligious people with Christians. Jesus is contrasting the prayers of very, very religious people with the prayers of Christians. Tim Keller asks a really insightful uh, question here. To see if your prayers are pagan prayers or Christian prayers, and that is, what is the cause by which you believe you will be heard? In other words, why do you think God answers your prayers? Religious people think God answers their prayers for one reason, and Christians believe God answers their prayers for a different reason. For religious people, it has everything to do with their performance. It has to do with what they do. I've been really good lately. Um, I gave a good chunk of my, my year-end bonus to charity this year, and I've said no to some pretty serious temptation. And so, God, I'm really counting on you to come through and help me get that promotion that I'm up for. Okay? You see how subtle that can be. Lord, I've done this, and I'm counting on you to come through for me. Keller calls that a business relationship with God. I like the analogy that he uses. He says, there's actually, there's two ways that you can live in somebody's house. You can live in somebody's house as a boarder. That is, you pay rent, and the landlord makes sure that the electricity is on and the water's running. Okay? And you can have a very good relationship with a border tenant uh, landlord relationship, but it's always a business relationship. If I perform, then I get to stay. If I stop paying rent, I get evicted. Christians believe their prayers are heard for a totally different reason. Christians believe that their prayers are heard only because of our relationship with God that he is our father and we are his children and he delights in giving us good things. Absolutely no strings attached, not having anything to do with our performance. With the religious person, I pay the rent, I perform, and then I'm accepted. In God's economy, I'm accepted and then I just, I want to perform as a child. Of, of my loving Heavenly Father. So the easiest way to see this and to evaluate if your prayers are like pagan prayers or if your prayers are like Christian prayers is when your prayers are not answered. You see, for the religious person, if their prayers are not answered, they become either angry or they become anxious. They become angry in that, you know, God, I, I've told the line, I've done all the things that you asked me to do. I can't believe you let this happen to me. And they become angry with God because he hasn't done what they expected him to do based on their performance. The other option, the, the other extreme, is they become 
anxious. That is, God didn't answer my prayers. I must have done something wrong. I must not have performed up to his standard. There must be something that I did that caused him not to answer my prayers or that, allowed him, that caused him to allow this bad thing to come into my life. So you see, the, the religious person says, God, come into my life and be my landlord. I'll do my part, and I'm going to expect you to do yours. The Christian says, Lord, come into my life and be my father. When life goes well for a religious person, they say, of course, I'm a good person. When life goes well for a Christian, they say, I can't believe it. God is so good beyond anything that I deserve. So when God doesn't answer your prayers the way that you want, do you get angry? Is your reaction, God, I've given my whole life to you and this happens? Or do you get anxious? Do unanswered prayers cause you to feel guilty? Could it be because of something that I've done in my past I could never deserve for God to answer my prayers? You see, the Bible's very clear that we are in Christ. The Father has adopted us into his family. So adoption, who does the adopting? Is it the child or is it the parent? The parent does the adopting, right? The parent decides to bring that child into their house, and adoption is a legal process by which that parent says, I will treat this child completely as my own child. And that's what God does for us. The Father has adopted you. He treats you with all the affection and all the commitment as, he's, as his own son. You understand that? When God adopts you, he does not say, if you misbehave, I'll send you home. All prayer must begin with the recognition that we approach God purely on the basis of adoption as his love child. If you don't understand this doctrine of adoption, you don't really understand even what it means to be a Christian. When our prayers are answered, there's a sense of praise and awe in what God has done. So that's why we begin our father, not our king, although he is, not our friend, he's that too, but our father who has adopted us, placed us into his family, and cares for us simply because we're his children. The, the second progression in this, we'll talk about the progression of prayer, then our father is the first, our father in heaven is the second. And I don't know about you, but when I think of heaven, I think of this, this place in a galaxy far, far away. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's out there. It's, it's up beyond what we can see. It's, it's you know, this, this throne room of God with the cherubim and the seraphim floating around, whatever that looks like. And, and it's, it's this place far away. And, and prayer then becomes launching my prayers up towards this far, far away galaxy where, where God is and hopefully they get there, and God who's running the whole universe will hopefully have time to regard my prayer and answer it. And when we see heaven like that, when we see God like that, it's no wonder that we're not compelled to pray, we're not drawn into prayer. Um, John Mark Comer at Bridgestone's church sound, said something interesting. I, I love this. He was talking about this word heaven, and he says in the Greek, this word is uranos. And um, it's actually it's sometimes translated heaven, but it's also translated air. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I went and I looked it up, and sure enough, 
Uranos is often translated air. In Matthew 5, it says, the birds of the air have nests. Same word as our Father in heaven, our Father in the air. Acts 22, Paul's giving his defense, and the people are getting really angry and says they're throwing their coats and they're throwing dust into the Uranos. They're throwing dust into the air. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, if you speak in a language nobody can understand, you'll just be speaking into the air, speaking into the Uranos. And so you could translate this, our Father in the air. And air is not a far-off galaxy, way, way away beyond what we can see or think. The air is all around us. It's as close as the air we breathe. It's as close as our skin. And take just a moment, close your eyes, and imagine God as close as the air. Breathe it in. Understand that he's all around you. That's how close God is. Now open your eyes. We've got to admit, we don't always feel that close to God, do we? But uh, another author that I read this week said, God does not know how to be absent. You know, when we think of God as far away, that's our problem. It doesn't mean that he's not as close as the air that we breathe. So the first thing we know about God, he's our father. The second is he's our father. He's as close as the air that we breathe. The third thing that we learn about um, in the progression is that the primary purpose of prayer is worship. Not getting stuff that we want, but it's knowing him. Hallowed be thy name. This morning I looked at Jan and I said, hallowed be that scarf. Hmm, that's good looking. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. Um, hallowed, what does that even mean? You know, I mean, it's not a word that we really use, so it's kind of problematic. And if you read into it, then you find that it means holy, but that, that's kind of problematic too. I mean, what exactly does that mean? And so as I studied this, I, I came to see that there's this idea of an aesthetic sense in which God is beautiful and special without any parallel. There is no other being like God, and that the primary purpose of prayer is joyful, grateful worship and enjoyment of the Father's company. That's the purpose of prayer. Hallowed be thy name. It's the sense of, of worship for who he is and for what he's done, and we begin our prayers with that. The fourth in the progression, your kingdom come, your will be done. Someone has said that the main way that the kingdom of God comes to earth is through prayer. Jesus is saying here, our prayers really do make a difference. And you know, a lot of us, if we're honest, we don't really fully believe that, right? We kind of think God's going to do what God's going to do, whether I pray or not. I mean, he's sovereign, right? He knows the beginning from the end. Somehow, our prayers make a difference. Jesus seemed to say that if you pray, some things happen. And if you don't pray, some things don't happen. And so this idea of God answering prayer is not a charade. God doesn't pretend to be answering our prayers when really he's just going to do what he was going to do anyway. I love what Comer says. When you pray, come with a holy tremor because you have the potential to change reality. You are about to partner with the Holy Spirit to bend reality in the direction of God's will on earth. Now that would motivate us to pray, wouldn't it? So sometimes 
in learning something, it, it's helpful to ingrain it by, by looking at the opposite. And so I thought, what would the opposite of the Lord's Prayer be? Uh, and it would be kind of like this. Number one, I have a business relationship with God. If I pay the rent, he comes through and helps me. He's either demanding of me or he's disappointed in me. Number two, God is really far away and I don't feel his presence. Number three, the main point of prayer is get the stuff that I want. Have my life go pretty well. And number four, my prayers don't really make a difference anyway. And for too many of us, that describes our prayer life. And it's no wonder that we don't really look forward to times of prayer. But think about how Jesus teaches us to pray. God has chosen to adopt me as his love child. He's my daddy. You know, he has good intentions for me. He loves me and he wants what's best for me. Two, God is as close as the air that I breathe. He's not far away at all. You know, I didn't coordinate with Chad. I mean, when he does this, this song, Breathe, this is the air I breathe. I mean, I was blown away. It's like, how did he know to have that song? But that's the idea. It's the air that I breathe. He's in the air. He's filling my lungs. God is not far away. The main point of prayer, number three, is to enjoy God and experience a relationship with him. And number four, my prayers really do make a difference. So that's why the progression of prayer is so important. It starts with God as our loving father. It worships him for who he is and what he's already done. And it calls upon the power of God to bend reality in the direction of God's will on earth. Now, what do you want to ask for? It's a different way of looking at prayer. So I want to change directions in our remaining time, and I want to look at a passage that we recently looked at in Act, which I think illustrates this whole thing really, really well. Um, disciples here in Act, it's, it's the first prayer of the church, and what they're doing is they're just modeling what Jesus taught them when they asked him to teach him to pray. I want to summarize this in four different scenes. Um, the first scene, uh, Peter is at Pentecost, uh, at, shortly after Jesus dies and raised from the dead. And, and Peter stands up and he gives this incredible sermon and 3,000 people give their lives to Christ on day one and the church is off to a great start. And scene two, Peter and John walk in through the city gates and they come to a place where there's a, there's a, a lame man and he's begging. He's been lame since birth, his legs are kind of withered and he's sitting down, he's got a basket and he's begging for money. That's how he, it's the only way that he can eat. And he, he asks for for money, and Peter and John say, look, we don't have silver, we don't have gold, but what we have we'll give to you in the name of Jesus, stand and walk. And this guy jumps up and says he was walking and leaping and praising God, and there's this huge crowd around him. It says right in the middle of downtown Jerusalem. I mean, everybody's there, and it's, it said a huge crowd was drawn because of this miracle. And Peter, whenever he sees a crowd, he stands up and he preaches. And so he stands up and he preaches. He says, you know, Jesus was given by God as the only way to salvation, and you killed him, but God raised him from the dead, and we can have new life through him. And guess what? 5,000 men gave their lives to Christ there. That means about 10,000 people gave their lives to Jesus on this like, second day. In addition to the 3,000 that we started with, church is off to an unbelievable start. Scene three, the religious leaders show up, and they're not all excited about this by any means. Um, they take Peter and John, and they throw them in jail. And um, the next day, they question them. They're not so happy about all this Jesus talk. 
and they say, you know, they, they question him, and they, they have this dialogue back and forth, and Peter ultimately says, basically, yeah, that's all true, but in addition to that, there's something you've got to know about Jesus. He says there's salvation in no one else because there's no other name in heaven given among men by which they must be saved. And when you say that to people, it gets them kind of riled up. And when you say that to people in your work, on your softball team, in your circle of friends, it gets them kind of riled up too. And they look at you and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, slow down. You're not one of those Jesus people, are you? Really, those, those narrow-minded, um, one-way, we've got the only way to God kind of people. Tell them, you, you can't believe that. I mean, there's lots of ways to God. Everybody's got to find their own path. But this is what's so different and so amazing about Christianity. It's different from every, his, every religion in the history of mankind because every other religion teaches that there is a path to God. Christianity does not teach that there's a path to God. Christianity teaches that there is a name, there is a person, that Jesus is the only way, he is the only door through which we can come into a relationship with God, our loving Heavenly Father. Well, this got people pretty riled up, and they warned them, and they threatened them with physical beating and jail time. So, scene four, the church comes together to pray. And Peter and John explained everything that happened. And these people, remember, these are the folks who have been taught by Jesus to pray, lifted their voice to God in prayer. And you know what they prayed for? What would we pray for? If, if Scott and John got thrown in jail for talking to people about Jesus, what would we pray for? What would the American church pray for if their leaders started getting thrown in jail for talking about Jesus? Well, I'll tell you, we'd pray for safety really fast, wouldn't we? We would pray, Lord, put a hedge of protection around Scott and John. Whatever that is, do that. And, <laughs> you know, and, and we would pray, you know, we'd definitely pray that they get out of jail, and we'd probably pray for a good attorney, yeah. right? What did they pray for? Kenton Beesor breaks this down into, take, breaks down their prayer into three parts. And I really like this. Part one, I'm going to paraphrase a bit because it's a little bit long in the text. But they essentially say, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and everything in them, we are in your hands. Before we ask anything, we acknowledge that you alone are sovereign. They say, they say that we know who we're talking to, and before anything else, we want to acknowledge that you are in control. A few weeks ago, it didn't look like you were in control. It looked like evil had won but we were wrong. And now we know that we are in your hand, that you are sovereign and you alone are Lord. And we would rather be in your hand in jail than not in your hands and out of jail. And this is exactly what Jesus taught them in the Lord's prayer. Father, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, you know, awesome and and all-powerful is your name, and we put ourselves in your hands. The second part of their prayer is this, and this is, all, this is almost shocking. This is where it gets really good, or bad, depending on how you look at it. Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness to speak the word. Boldness, and you think, wow, wasn't it boldness that got us in trouble in the first place? Shouldn't we be trying to, trying to dial down this boldness thing a little bit? 
They pray for boldness, great boldness, to speak courageously and to proclaim that Jesus is the only Savior. Boldness, to tell people that there's grace and healing and forgiveness in Jesus. When was the last time you prayed, Lord, give me boldness to walk into my coffee shop, to walk into my work and tell people what Jesus has done in my life, to let people know that, that somebody died, you know, cared so much for you that they died for you, to bring you into a relationship with God. Lord, give me boldness to tell people that they can have a relationship with God, but that it's through Jesus. Third part of their prayer. This gets even worse. They say, Lord, stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be, named, made, be done in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Whew, that's a scary prayer. What if I pray for a miracle and it doesn't happen? Am I even allowed to pray for a miracle? I mean, does our church do that kind of stuff? I mean, well, we're not, I don't know if we're one of those miracle kind of churches, you know? But these disciples had seen that God did this miracle. He healed this man, and as a result, 10,000 people came into a relationship with Jesus. And so they pray for miracles. What if you prayed for miracles in the lives of your friends? Some of you know my brother-in-law's story. Gordon was diagnosed with uh, stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And... Um, my, my, my other brother-in-law, Richard, told Gordon, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm, I'm praying that God is going to completely heal you. And we thought, man, that's a pretty audacious prayer. I mean, you know, kind of presuming on God, right, to, to pray. I mean, that doesn't happen with stage four pancreatic cancer. But Richard prayed, and I don't know how this whole thing works, but God healed Gordon. And seven years later, he is you know, just on fire for Jesus. He's talking to people about the Lord. He's sharing his story with people who have cancer. He's making a difference in people's lives. He's blessed a lot of people that are here in this congregation. And I'm not saying that every time you pray for somebody who has cancer that they're going to get healed. I mean, I know that's, that's, it's a, that's a rare, rare kind of thing. But God has the power to do that. And why don't we pray for that miracle? What if you told your friends, you know, I'm praying for a miracle for you. I'm, I'm praying for God to interject in your life, in your marriage, in your relationship with your son that's going off of the rails, in whatever it is that they need. I'm going to pray for you that God steps in and does something special so that you know that God loves you and God cares for you. What if we prayed like that? What if we added to our prayer, oh God, we are in your hands. Will you give us great boldness to unashamedly proclaim the good news? Will you do a miracle in the life of my friend so that he can see and experience that you are Lord? And when they finished praying, it says the whole place was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And when you pray bold prayers... I just might shape things up a little bit. You know, we talked about the basis of prayer, our Father. We talked about the progression of prayer and how it starts with God and recognizing His sovereignty. 
We talked about the power of prayer and how it works its way out in the early church and today. This message wouldn't be complete without a discussion of the problem of prayer. By that, here's what I mean. It's interesting that in the context of um, the, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus starts out by saying in the context, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in heaven who is unseen. You see, hypocrites love to be seen in public, but they don't pray in private. Jesus says that prayer is a hypocrisy meter. Do you see that? It simply reveals the true state of your relationship with God. The problem with prayer is it exposes us, all of us, as hypocrites. Are you seen in church, in life group, in your social friends, circles, but when you're alone, you rarely pray? Are your prayers bold and powerful to expand the kingdom? Or are your prayers all about yourself, decisions, health, safety, comfort? Know that I'm talking to myself more than I'm talking to anybody here. And the temptation at this point, my temptation and your temptation at this point, is to power up, to feel guilty, you know? I'm, I'm going to pray more. I'm going to feel guilty because of my lack of, my pr- lack of prayer. And I'm going to promise God, okay, God, I'm going to pray more. I'm going I'm to really please you with this. And that's not what I'm saying. If that's what you take away from this, you've, really, you've missed the point completely. We can make all the commitments we want. We can just decide that, you know, I'm going to pray and you could pray more than anybody in this building over the next year and you could still be doing that in the context of a business relationship with God. You could still be paying rent with all of those prayers. And hear me, God loves you just as much if you never pray another prayer the rest of your life. Prayer is for us. God gets no benefit from your prayers. You do. And he invites us into a relationship with him, into a close-knit relationship with him where we can just enjoy his presence. Some of you are the religious people that I talked about earlier. If you have any relationship with God, it's a business relationship. God, you do your part, I'll do mine. That's not a family relationship. And that is not the relationship of a loving father and his child. If that describes you, I want to share with you a message that Christians for the last 2,000 years have called the good news. And that is that God loves you not because of what you do, but simply because of who he is and what he has done. He invites you into a relationship with him And that relationship starts with acknowledging that you can't be good enough. You can't pray hard enough or pray long enough to get yourself into God's good graces. You just can't do it. The only one who's ever lived who passed the hypocrisy test was Jesus. And only by placing your trust in him can you come into a relationship with him as a father and his child. If that describes you, I want to ask you to do something at the end of the service, okay? But would you just 
track me down, tap me on the shoulder, catch my attention, or grab Scott or grab Chad. But would you just come up to one of us and just say, you know what, you are describing me. And I would love to grab a cup of coffee with you or just in whatever way, help you take the next step toward God in your life. If you, um, if you do have a father-child relationship with God, know that you know, pagans can't pray like Christians, but Christians can pray like pagans. You know, there's so many ways that you can just be paying rent. And I want to invite you to come fully into a family relationship with your father. Pray not because it's an obligation, not because it's rent, but because it delights your heart to be with the Father. God, we, um, we don't pass the hypocrisy test. We all are hypocrites in this area of prayer. We all fall short. So none of us are looking at somebody else thinking that we're superior in any way. But Lord, I pray for those who are here who have not yet come into a relationship with you, that they would understand that it's a relationship of love and not a relationship of works and performance. Lord, that you love us simply because that's who you are. And you sent your son to die in our place. You lived a life that we could never live. And you died the death that we deserved so that we could come into relationship with you. And Father, I pray for those here who haven't made that commitment, that they would step out and just grab one of us and engage in a conversation to take the next step towards you. We pray that you would work that in their heart, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you so much for coming this morning. Let's thank Bill one more time for sharing God's word with us. Hopefully you were blessed like I was from that. What if this was the year that we exchanged a tenant relationship for a relationship with a father? Sounds awesome to me. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.